I'm Britta Wigginton. I'm Brett Scholes. And I'm Ada Gibson. We're a group of early career researchers. And we're all from the International Society of Critical Health Psychology. Otherwise known as ISCHIP. And you're listening to The Operative Word. Hi, you're listening to Issue 3, Volume 1 of The Operative Word, the official podcast of the International Society of Critical Health Psychology, which we sometimes refer to as ISCHIP. I'm Ali Gibson, a research fellow in the School of Public Health and Community Medicine at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. In this issue, we'll be hearing from our co-editor, Dr. Brett Schultz. Brett is a research fellow in the ANU Medical School at the Australian National University, as well as board member at the Mental Health Consumer Network of the Australian Capital Territory, and adjunct associate professor at the University of Canberra. Before we delve into a discussion, let's first hear Brett giving his five-minute challenge presented at last year's ISCHIP conference. My challenge to critical health psychologists is to ally, and I mean to actually ally. I want to preface this by saying that a lot of us are allies to those that we research. That is, as critical health psychologists, we do work to redress power imbalances, to fight injustices, and to seek power for those without. We do a good job of it, which is for many of us what keeps us coming back, being inspired by the ISCHIP conference every two years, to be able to listen to the brilliant work that is being done to fight injustice. Despite the work that we do to redress power imbalances, though, my challenge is to do even more to ally, to actually ally with those we research. I have four propositions. My first proposition is that just because something is convenient doesn't mean that it is a good idea. To actually ally, we need to ensure that our allyship is not just done for convenience sake. In Antonia Lyon's keynote address to the ISCHIP conference in July 2017, she spoke about the decision-making process with the young people working on her alcohol research program. Although it would have taken a lot of time and resources to have conversations face-to-face with these young people, and it would have certainly been more convenient to just make the decisions herself, or at least faster, and would take less resources, the research wouldn't have been as meaningful and it wouldn't have been as valuable to the young people that it affected the most. And this is a good example of doing allyship not out of convenience. My second proposition is that the researched communities or groups or individuals should be the ones driving our research questions, research methodologies and research processes. In other words, to actually ally, we need to meaningfully partner with the researched. We need to ensure that they have decision-making power over research decisions so that partnerships don't just become an exercise in tokenism. I particularly like this proposition because it's something that all researchers could do, whether they're early career researchers or honours students, right through to senior professors with very established research programs. My third proposition is that to actually be an ally, we need to work to ensure that those that we ally with are recognised and valued for the work that they do in our research programs. And there's three ways in which I think this should be done. First, those of us senior enough to be able to make hiring decisions should work to create positions dedicated to those with experience in that field. 
For example, in my research center, we have a consumer researcher, so a researcher with a lived experience of mental ill health, who's employed because of that experience and because of the value that that brings to our research program. Second, even if we don't have uh, control over hiring decisions in our departments or centers, we can still try to make sure that we include research associates on our grant applications that are dedicated for people who have a lived experience of whatever our research focuses on. So we can make sure that they're remunerated for their contributions to the work that we do. Third, we can encourage honours, masters and PhD students from these communities that we typically research with to undertake research in the field, to keep developing the research programs and valuing the contributions that they bring. My final proposition that I'll leave you with is to avoid being defensive when you work as an ally. I'd like to think that this almost goes without saying, but I've seen it too many times not to mention it. I imagine that most of us have nothing but the best intentions for our research to address power imbalances, but as privileged members of academia, we can sometimes forget the agenda and the needs of the people that we're trying to support. If we're confronted by these people telling us that we need to rethink our approach, our research, we need to stop certain behaviours, or we need to start again, please try to avoid the immediate defensiveness because that can turn into reproducing marginalization and can in fact silence the communities that we're trying to work with. Thanks for sharing that, Brett. Now I'd love to unpack your challenge a bit. Brett, thank you so much for giving your five-minute challenge again. I know I can say personally just how much I enjoyed listening to it and thinking over like your four very practical and useful tips for us in wanting to ally with research partners or community groups. What was it like for you when um, you were asked to do the five-minute challenge? Like, what was your first response? I think I responded immediately. I was very excited. Already had a bit of an idea that this was what I wanted to talk about. I know part of the deal with us giving the five-minute challenge was that we weren't supposed to talk about our own research, but I actually have been working on collecting some data this year about allies to the consumer movement. And I guess my research process more broadly has been to ally. So for example, the last couple of years, everything I've published has been with a consumer researcher. So I try to do that, be an ally within my own research. So in a way, I felt like I was almost cheating because I sort of was thinking about my own research. But at the same time, I thought, well, the lessons that I've been learning and have been thinking about through allyship to the consumer movement probably apply to a lot of areas of psychology and a lot of minority groups or a lot of power imbalances that we're all kind of interested in. So I thought... I'll take what I've put and, and what I've sort of analysed about the consumer movement and I'll try and make it a bit more general. Yeah, and you really see your experience of actually working to ally with people coming through in the suggestions you give. And, and I think that's probably why it comes across as so practical. Let's hear from our co-editor, Dr. Britta Wigginton. Britta is a lecturer and researcher in the disciplines of public health and psychology at the University of Queensland. 
Your podcast was really interesting and got me thinking a lot about the research that I do, the research that I read, and the extent to which your four propositions are adequately considered in this context. And I wonder if you could comment on if there was anything that you found challenging for yourself in writing your five-minute challenge, given... I guess, the sensitive nature of the topic in terms of working alongside people with less power, less privilege? Mm, Yeah. Oh, gosh, there there were a few things. The first thing that comes to mind that was a bit of a challenge was in knowing what language to use. So kind of tying into what I was saying before about trying to make this more general, I felt like some of the languages that I used was almost marginalising or reproducing marginalisation. So, for example... I think I said something along the lines of, you know, the groups that we research, positioning them as being powerless or being acted upon. And if I was, uh, if I was not making it general and I'm just talking about my area, I'd say, you know, research with consumers or research in collaboration with consumers. But I tried to find a way to kind of say that when you're making it general and you're talking about all the various different groups or individuals or whatever that may be that we do research with, it kind of made it a little bit more problematic. And I sort of thought, well, I, I tried to do my best, but I think I did sort of, I think that was a bit, a bit problematic. But I think, I hope that the, the fundamental meaning of what I was saying went across. And then the second thing that comes to mind about the challenge that I had was that I guess I, I came up with these four propositions and I think they're all really important. There's probably many more that are important as well. But I also, like, I think the process of being an ally and the process of doing allyship is, uh, it's iterative, it's it's developed over time. It's, um, it's not as if you can just wake up one day and say, yeah, I'm an ally now. So for example, one of my propositions was that we need to remunerate. We need to like financially, you know, pay for the value that these partnerships bring. And it's not as if everybody just has the capacity to do that. I had these propositions and it's not as if you can just meet all of those propositions immediately. You can, you're not just some, like an ally and you need to be working at being an ally. So one example I talked about, you know, I think we need to remunerate the people that we're working with. So if we are partnering with, for example, in my case, consumers of mental health services, then I'd just be using them if I was working with them, but then sort of say, oh, thanks. Now we've got the paper that benefits me and you get nothing and you're not even paid for your time and your efforts and the value that you bring. But at the same time, it's not as if we all have unlimited capacity to pay for research associates. And so... Yeah, I kind of came up with these propositions thinking these are propositions to work towards, but acknowledging that it is actually quite difficult to meet them all immediately. I wonder, actually, um, I really like your point about that you don't just wake up one day and you're an ally. And in thinking about developing a new project, how you might have identified a particular community group that you would like to ally with, What would you suggest in terms of making those first steps um, to develop ties? And and particularly in, um, because recently I've been thinking about credibility as a researcher, like how you show or prove that credibility and almost earnestness in wanting to genuinely work with group yeah so i guess first of all in terms of making those connections and 
developing some of those relationships and, and really trying to ally with, say, a particular group or a particular individual. It's really interesting because I've been thinking a lot lately about that identity of an ally and who can say that they are an ally. And so, for example, I like to think of myself as an ally to the consumer movement. But then again, I'm not a consumer and I feel like almost I don't have the right to say I'm an ally because they may think that I'm not that great. However, in my experience of saying doing research with, um, there's a couple of community groups here in Canberra, there's a consumer network that um, I've done some research with. So there's a consumer network here in Canberra. They, the relationship that I've built with them has been one that's kind of happened over time. So um, it started with drawing research participants from the network, but then also asking the network what kind of research would be important to them, what would add value to their, you know, their activities and what kind of evidence base would be useful. And I found like, and this may apply to a lot of other areas as well, but because those are the people who are actually affected by the stigma and the power issues that I'm trying to, you know, draw attention to, they already kind of know if all the publications I've published I'm acting like it's some big evidence advance to the area, but they've kind of said, well, yeah, we're living with, we know this. But the value that I think that I do bring is being able to help add to that evidence base and say, well, now we have published that we can draw on and we can say we need these kinds of resources because the evidence supports this and that kind of thing. Yeah, these relationships definitely happen over time. I think it definitely helps to have an in, whether that be yeah. one individual that you have built up a good connection with or whether that be, you know, another researcher who can introduce you to someone in that community. Certainly that's, that was the case with me. So, you know, I work with a fairly senior professor who's well known for being an ally to the consumer movement. And so her endorsement of me, um, I feel definitely gave me some of that credibility that I might not have otherwise had if no introduction had come from anywhere. So I wonder, yeah, maybe a valuable way of making that connection would be through somebody or through, you know, so that you're not just another researcher who's come to do research on a particular group mm. and save them. That's really interesting, Brett. And I wonder if you could comment on the extent to which this kind of identity as an ally, which you were orienting to before, how much of that is hinged on what seems to be in your five-minute challenge, kind of this questioning of the neutral position of the research and who you are is actually really matter really matters to the process of the research and the outcomes and credibility of the research in the community. And so to what extent that kind of insider-outsider continuum, mm. to what extent can your ally identity that you were just talking about be hinged on that continuum? Is there, is there ways of gaining trust or rapport with, with the community, with the, with the people that you seek to represent and do research for, ultimately, that can draw on your own identities and not you as this kind of neutral ally in which your own positionings remain kind of unchallenged or invisible? Yeah, oh, I think about this a lot, particularly in that I can't, I don't, I'm not a consumer. I haven't experienced mental ill health. I'm, I mean, I've been stressed before and I've, you know, experienced that kind of thing, but I haven't experienced stigma. 
um, of having a mental health diagnosis. I haven't experienced seclusion or restraint. I haven't experienced having to, you know, be on medication that really changes all kinds of aspects of your life. So I, I don't occupy that identity at all and, and can't. But I guess what I see the ally identity sort of hinging on is that I do have power. And so as, a, as an academic and as a critical health psychologist, I can advocate for people who do identify as consumers and I can try and make sure they're included in things or that their perspective is actually properly listened to and not just tokenistically sought. And so I kind of see that identity of an ally. My working definition, this has been challenged by some of my participants, I'll talk about that as a moment, <laughs> but my sort of working definition of an ally was somebody who can use their power to empower or facilitate the empowerment of others a particularly marginalized group. And so, yeah, I wonder about that in some other movements. So, for example, you know, straight allies to the LGBTQI community, for example, I, I kind of see that as similar, you know, because they're not, because straight allies aren't marginalized in the same way or, you know, living through that stigma, they can use that power, if you like, the fact that they're not stigmatized to advocate for the LGBTQI community that is marginalized. But of course... When we talk about, I think that's a really good example to lead into my next point, is that when you talk about identities and when you talk about, say, for example, the LGBTQI movement, let's say there would be a lot of people who do research in that area as well, and certainly plenty of ischippers. And I often wonder, and I'm, this is coming from, this is an area I'm not at all an expert in, so I'm, I may be talking out of turn and people may just say this is a ridiculous idea, but I wonder about, say, a gay cisgendered man doing research with somebody from the trans community and I wonder about the role of like that continuum. I mean, that researcher might be an outsider as far as the trans community is concerned, but might have a little bit of buy-in from the fact that they do experience some marginalisation and some of the stigma, therefore have a bit of understanding. So I think there's potentially different communities and different um, insider-outsider roles. And yeah, I'm almost intersections of identity positions mm-hmm. um, that are going to afford you greater or lesser connection to the group mm-hmm. that you're working with. Because there's a lot of um, disagreements among, or I guess, debate within the research on insider-outsider work and whose res- who's responsibility mm-hmm. is it doing this research? Jenny Setchell and I wrote a paper around our responsibility as outsiders working in, this, in various health topics. Mm-hmm. And with various privilege and power we actually owe it to communities to use that power for good and I wonder because one of your propositions in terms of recognizing and valuing allies in the research was encouraging students from the communities to drive research projects and in a sense Brett it seems like you're actually calling for insiders to be driving research projects and defining research agendas. Yeah well I guess that's sort of tied in with a bit of data that I collected this year and noted that so I was looking at how people from the consumer movement felt about allies and their relationships with allies and a lot of participants sort of challenged me on that definition about power and sort of said well you know allies can't empower us allies might be able to facilitate the empowerment of us but they can't actually empower us and then I also have a PhD student who is a consumer researcher and 
And when I see the kind of research that she does and the kinds of questions that she asks, she generally asks better questions than I could because she knows she has so much more insight. She has a lot more, well, she's experienced what she's researching. And that's, that's not to say that as an outsider, I still can't add value and I still can't use my position of power to advocate for that and that I don't bring any value. But it's sort of to say that, you know, she has insights that I couldn't possibly have had myself and she brings a lot of value to that that I couldn't bring. And and I do think that we do need to facilitate more insiders if they want to. I mean, we don't, <laughs> we don't necessarily force them, but those who want to take part and, and if they do want to do more research, then I think given that we are privileged and we can do what we can to sort of encourage them and support them and if that be through supervision or through, you know, some kind of collaboration, then I think that's a really good piece of value that we can bring to the mo- these movements. Something that I've been thinking about recently, and I think this touches on it, is the slippery terrain we enter in seeking to represent the voices of marginalized groups in particular. And what often drives us, you know, this this sense of almost altruistic need or desire to, to represent a group, to represent their voices. And that can easily slip into, obviously, paternalistic outcomes, even if they're unintended. So I wonder from your own experience, how you kind of manage that and working with groups, how you can balance representing their voices, how you might do that. And also balance that with our critical background where methodologically or theoretically that can actually throw up other issues in, you know, things like checking transcripts or writing up reports or something like that. So, you know, that might not fit with our critical discursive approach or some other methodological approach. Yes. Oh, Great question. There's so much. One challenge that I'm often acutely aware of is that I try, I mean, I, I use my position as a researcher to advocate for consumer leadership within the mental health sector. And so, and, and as I said earlier, you know, all the papers I've published over the last couple of years have been in collaboration with consumer researchers. And as somebody who wants to advocate for more consumer leadership, I sometimes struggle when it's in terms of authorship on papers and you know, if I've led a paper and and so I should be first author but then I'm also trying to advocate for more consumer leadership and so how do I how how do I balance that and it is a challenge one sort of practical thing that I've come up with in my department we have a consumer researcher there's one particular project we're working on at the moment where you know I led two papers from a particular project and she's leading the third because that's how we divvied up the work. And, and I thought that was important. But at the same time, yeah, it does sort of sit uncomfortably when you're like, oh, I want more consumer leadership, but I'm now taking this first authorship. But at the same time, I have done most of that work. And, and I yeah. my own personal career, if I don't have enough first author yeah. papers, then I, you know, I need to keep progressing my career as well. So there is that sort of balancing the need to further your own career, but also trying to advocate for others at the same time. And that can sometimes be a challenge. As far as other, you brought up a, a great example there about checking transcripts and, um, and and that kind of issue. And it's it's something that I actually just recently, 
um, have been trying to navigate as well. So I was collecting some data and I was interviewing people from a particular association here in Canberra who they're involved with sending consumers to health services to represent consumer views on various communities or projects or that kind of thing. And I was interviewing somebody from that organisation. And because this organisation is relatively powerful, so within the consumer movement, I mean, consumers as a whole are are fairly marginalised, but then there are privileged subgroups within that group who really had quite strong views about checking transcripts and and thought it was really important that we, we offer that to all participants. And I was sort of talking about how I'm quite happy to for people to add to transcripts and I'm happy to talk about them, but, but at the same time, I'm really keen to keep as much data as possible because this is about a really sensitive issue. And we've gotten some really good data about the power struggles between health service providers and, and this, the consumers who were sent from this consumer group. And I was concerned about the agenda of wanting to silence those issues of power. So anyway, we sort of, we, we had a debate about it, a friendly debate about it, and, and they were quite happy in the end for me to progress that. But at the same time, I felt sort of an inner struggle because this is what my participants were asking of me and I want to do justice to that voice. And yet at the same time, I want to make sure that we're able to keep the data that talks about this power imbalance because for me, that was sort of the crux of this issue. Um, so it is it is sensitive to navigate, and uh, I don't necessarily have an answer of how to navigate it. But I think it is it does help to reflect on on that and try and work out how you can do justice to your participants, justice to your own position, and it is tricky to navigate. It's almost like you have to maintain your integrity both to your participants and your ongoing relationship with them, but also your integrity to your criticality, your methodological position and your own work. And that's a tricky balance. Oh, it's such a tightrope. And I wonder, building on Ali's point, Brett, if you wanted to comment, because your five-minute challenge really nicely equips us to think through and reflect on how we can engage with various expected output for academics, right? Papers, grants, hiring decisions, and so on. But beyond the academic context, what can we do as allies, or what could you invite us to reflect through as allies around non-academic output for participants? Reflecting on identifying what it is in terms of whether it's the advocacy kind of angle or kind of going beyond the academic paper, how can we benefit our community as, as allies? Yeah, I was having a really interesting conversation with somebody who does a very does research in a fairly different area to what I do in, t- in gender and sexuality. And I was kind of having this conversation about what does it mean to be an ally and, and that kind of thing. And they were saying to me that they're an academic and they were saying to me that they're not that kind of advocate. They don't have that sort of personality to go out and be an advocate or, you know, necessarily have a broader social fight. But they see that what they can do is they've got these academic skills and they see what they can do would be to write a paper or provide evidence or that kind of thing. So I think maybe for some people, well, well I, I wonder about for some people, maybe that is where they see their allyship and that's the value they can add. For me, I do try to take it a step further. So for example, here in Canberra, 
right now, there is um, a lot of talk in the consumer movement about a recovery college. So we don't have a recovery college in the ACT, um, but basically what a recovery college is, is a college that's co-produced by consumers and other mental health professionals. And it provides um, training courses around a whole different kind of recovery related model. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> so for example, it, it could be a range of things. There's, there's a, there's a few different recovery colleges around the world some might offer courses specifically about you know mental health some also include courses about cooking or some and some include courses about how to apply for a job and that kind of thing so but the idea it's all about co-production and whatever courses any given recovery college provides are co-produced and so right now in the ACT, we're really hoping that we get funding. We've got a mental health, a minister for mental health. It's the first time the territories had a minister for mental health. And we're hoping to um, get funding to support this recovery college. And I see, you know, I've written papers that support better co-production and give ideas about how co-production can better be done in the consumer move. Um, and I have tried to also have input on that recovery college. So there's, there's a working group and I take part and I... Um, I see my role on that working group to offer advice about how co-production could be better facilitated. And, and certainly I've seen, you know, a few times when the consumer perspective hasn't been valued as much as I think it should have. And I've been able to sort of step in and say, oh, I think we need to make sure we're listening to this perspective and we need to make sure this is really co-produced. So that's just one example from my very specific area. But I think, you know, that, that was a situation that just sort of arose and I was able to get involved because of some of the research I'd done. And I wonder, as critical health psychologists, maybe in some contexts, it might be really easy to find um, practical ways that we can get involved. But even if not, I wonder if, you know, it could be a, a matter of asking those communities or those groups or those people that we're partnering with and saying, how can I get involved? How can I take this to the next step? Because those people are probably going to have a much better idea than we are as academics about what's needed. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Britt. That's a really, I think, helpful uh, set of suggestions. Thank you. Wonderful. And if your audience, Brett, could take away one thing from your talk, what would it be? What would be the operative word for your challenge? I guess the almost immediate reaction that I would have would be to say allyship is, is my operative word, but I'm actually going to say power is my operative word because, and now I'm going more than one word, but just to add in, because I, th I think that the role of the ally is to use their power for the greater good of, of in whatever context that may be. And I think you, you nicely remind us, Brett, about this as a process, a reflective process of really engaging with this so-called ally identity and thinking through implications, legitimacy, rapport, and all that comes along with that. So thank you so much. It's been very insightful and eye-opening, I'm sure, for each of us in our own ways in the research that we do. Thank you, Brett. Oh, thank yes. you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this issue of The Operative Word, the official podcast of the International Society of Critical Health Psychology. We'd really like to continue this conversation with you. If you have any comments, follow our Twitter account at CritHealthPsych and or use the hashtag the OW, short for The Operative Word. Please don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast and find any further information at the ISCHIP website. That's ischp.info. You can keep up with the editorial team on Twitter. Britta Wigginton is Brit underscore Wig. 
Brett is Brett underscore Schultz, and I'm Ali F. Gibson.